We're going to turn to Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14. If you've got the Pew Bible, if you will, so to speak, page uh, 1030. Hear the word of the Lord. And these are Jesus' words. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen and the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down, on my father, sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the courier who received this message from the Apostle John was given a daunting task. He left the, the island of Patmos with a message in his courier's satchel. Maybe it was a man bag, a, a man purse, something like that. But he, he traveled on this road and he started off on the southernmost part of Asia Minor, in the church of Ephesus. And he traveled in a circular kind of way. Moving northward, he would pass through the cities of Smyrna and Pergamum, and then he would turn southeast, and he would head towards Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. And finally, having come to the end of his journey, full circle on a well-beaten trade route, he would arrive at his final destination, Laodicea. No doubt, as he went through each of these cities and hung out just long enough to, to hear the, the respective letters to each of the churches, his understanding of the nature and practice of the local church surely blossomed. He went to Ephesus as, as he heard the reading to the church in Ephesus. It was a church so zealous for theological purity, and yet it was increasingly growing cold to one another. When he came to Smyrna, he, he heard and saw that it was just racked with poverty as a result of persecution and suffering, and yet it was standing firm. He came next to Pergamum, which was so full of love and compassion, but in danger of just theological and moral compromise. He came next to Thyatira. It was the epitome of growth and development, but the over, it had just an overall tolerance for just false teaching. 
came to Sardis, known throughout the world for life and love, but in reality, spiritual putrefaction was just rampant. He came to Philadelphia. It was small, so seemingly insignificant, yet so diligent and patient in the face of a hostile world. He thought he must have seen it all until he came to Laodicea. The church of Laodicea is a church of just nauseating ineffectiveness. Nauseating. It was diluted, had diluted self-sufficiency, spiritually speaking, that it had developed as a consequence of their great economic prosperity. What a great way to end their, his tour of duty, isn't it? It's like going on a vacation and going to each church and say, hey, this is what Jesus has to say to you. This is what Jesus has, hey, keep on going. You're doing great. Keep on going. And then you get to Laodicea, the end of your tour of duty. And Jesus says, man, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. Great way to end. And you know, the very common thing for even people in our day, when they look at the church, I have heard comments like this. The church of Jesus Christ is in the worst shape she has ever been in. She has compromised with the culture. She has given up on sound doctrine. The gospel is no longer her prized possession. Congregations are cold. People gossip. Leaders are abusive. Worship is man-centered. Materialism reigns. If only the churches could return to the way they used to be. Well, if the letters to the seven churches tell us anything, if they tell us anything, it is that the churches were never the way they used to be or were meant to be. When people talk about the church the way it used to be, it just shows their, their pure ignorance of nearly 2,000 years of church history. Look at 1 Corinthians. The whole book of 1 Corinthians. Chapters 1 through 4 in the church of 1 Corinthians. Church of Corinth tells us of severe divisions within the congregation. People were siding up under leaders that they would prefer. Chapter 5 was they, we read of incense, incest being condoned. In chapter 6, Christians were suing one another in court. In chapter 7, there is great confusion regarding divorce and singleness. In chapters 8 and 9, we have Christians exercising their freedom to the point of leading other people to sin. In chapters 10 and 11, we have a gross abuse of the Lord's Supper. In chapters 12 and 13, we have alienation in the assembly of God as a result of the misunderstanding of spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, we see that the worship service is absolutely out of control. In chapter 15, the bodily resur resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is being denied. And here's the amazing thing. Given all the problems in Corinth, does Paul ever say, get out of the church? Get out. 
Run, run for the hills, get out of the church. It is no longer a church. He doesn't even hint at such a thing, never. To the contrary, the letter begins with to the church of God that is in Corinth. To the church of God that is in Corinth. You see, the same thing that I find so incredibly encouraging right here in that 1 Corinthians is the same thing you see in the book of Revelation. Whether you date it in the 60s or 90s, it doesn't really matter at this point. The indisputable fact is this. Subsequent to the day of Pentecost, hardly any time had passed before the churches of the New Testament era were fouled up as ours are today. And yet, never once, never once, does Jesus say to the Christians, give up on the church. You never hear Jesus say, forsake the church, leave the church, take yourself from out underneath the pastoral leadership of the church. Leave it. It's worthless. I'd appeal to you this morning that if you love Jesus Christ, you will never abandon his bride. You'll never leave the church. You'll always be committed to ensuring her greatest good. And when you hear Jesus say, listen, I need you to be zealous and repent, you say, I will. For all the church of Laodicea's glaring weaknesses, Jesus still regarded her as a star in his hand. In fact, he takes great care to assure her that given all of her mess-ups, all of her disasters, her ineffectiveness, he is still driven by his love for her. The old Puritan, John Flavel, said this, Oh, do not be too quick to bury the church before she is long, before she is dead as long. We're too quick to bury the church. Uh, there's a messed up church there. We've messed up church there. In fact, even if I dare say this morning, we, we are a church that often grows, and many of the churches in our area often grow because of disgruntledness. That church is dead. I'm moving, picking up my stuff, and moving over here. That church is dead. They're this, they're that. I'm picking up my stuff and moving here. And we bury the church before Jesus says, what are you talking about? I love my bride. Ensure her greatest good. Pray for her. Work for her. Bring back her, her beauty. Samuel Stone wrote, and I'm an old church guy. Grew up in a traditional setting. So I saw this, this hymn, The Church is One Foundation. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. For her life he died. We give up on the church way too early. Jesus gave his all for her, his church. 
Verse two, the church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale, both against both her foe or traitor, she will ever prevail. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Jesus loves us, loves us. A screwed up small church. Just as much as he loves the church of Laodicea. It's his bride. And it's critical that we love the Lord of the bride. And see the want to see the best. For his church. We cannot see the church, universal or local, as, as a ragged Cinderella, just messed up and raped, pillaged, and destroyed by humanity. But we need to see her as an ineffable beauty that Jesus Christ dis- destined her to become. Now, admittedly, the church of Laodicea was not the ultimate destiny for the church. But it is his church. And so we need to understand and we need to get a big picture of of God and his design for the church and his desire even for Missio Dei Church. So the church of Laodicea, this sermon, is very appropriate to us because this is a church that was just nauseatingly ineffective because they have become so self-reliant on themselves and their good works and what they, their place in society and what they've accomplished. And we very quickly can become like that. So some history. Laodicea was an extremely, extremely wealthy church found in an extremely wealthy city. It was so wealthy that in 60 AD, the city was absolutely devastated by an earthquake. Destroyed. And so you know what they would have done? The the average city would have gone to the empire, gone to the government and requested funds and said, help us rebuild. But the people of Laodicea, in their wealth and their pride, said, no, we will do this on our own. In the annals, Tacitus wrote, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. They pulled themselves up from their, with their own bootstraps. They, look at what we can do. We don't need you. We don't need your help. 
It was a city not just known for its monetary success, because it was a banking center, but also for its linen and wool industry, especially of black sheep. And it was also well known for its medical school. Probably the most famous medical product that came out of Laodicea in the area was an eye salve, an ointment that was made in the area. Self-confidence, self-sufficient, seemingly well-endowed to that church that considered itself rich. Jesus says, buy gold from me that you may be rich. To the church that took pride in its textile industry, the Lord says, buy from me white garments that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness will not be seen. To the church which boasted of its contribution to the, to the medical world, especially of eyesight, Jesus says, buy from me eyesight to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Buy from me. Get over you. Get over you. Buy from me. Let me make you rich. Let me clothe your nakedness. Get over your self-righteous activities and programs and things. Let me clothe you with my righteousness. And let me give you healing for your eyes to see the glories of the gospel. One commentator said, because there's, there's not even one word of praise in here. Not one word. Even in the nearly dead of church of Sardis, there was a faithful remnant. But no such remnant is clearly discernible in this Laodicean church. Jesus sees that they were just morally and religiously tepid, lukewarm. And so I, I've heard sermons on this. Don't be a lukewarm Christian. Be on fire for Jesus. But what about the cold? Be cold for Jesus? But well, we've got to understand a little bit of the geography of the area, of the Lycus Valley. A few miles away, upstream, was the city of Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known for its medicinal springs where it produced these Waters, these uh, mineral baths that were of 95 degrees, and it was provided medicinal healing, and it was provided hot, hot water. Laodicea was six miles west of the city of Colossae. Colossae was known for its cool, refreshing springs that brought about refreshment. Drinking a cold glass of water on a hot day <sighs> brings refreshment. And in the middle is Laodicea. Self-sufficient, self-reliant, proud of themselves. And it had water piped from Hierapolis through aqueducts all the way down. And by the time it got to Laodicea, 
It was lukewarm and filled with putrid mineral taste. The only thing that comes to my mind, and maybe it doesn't work for you, but warm milk. Have you ever had milk that's been sitting out? Hot chocolate, give it to me. Ice cold milk with Oreos. Anytime. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You give me milk that has been sitting out all day. What does it make you want to do? Mm, thank you. And Jesus is saying, listen, I want, you, I want you to be the kind of church that is providing health and restoration and healing. Be a church that is medicinal or be this church that brings refreshment to cold pe or people who need to be re-nourished re and revitalized and bring back health. I want you to be these kind of churches. But this in the middle? No. Don't be that kind of a church where you're neither hot, you're neither cold, you're this. That they could be a church that is hot, that brings healing to the soul and life of an individual. That they could be the church that is bringing refreshment to the tired and weary traveler through the journey of life. That is what they want. That is what Jesus wants for our church. And where does that healing come from? Not through our programs. It's only Jesus. The healer. The restorer. The one who says, drink from me. Drink from me. And they were just absolutely prideful. This church boasted that it was healthy and prosperous. The Greek of this verse literally is rendered, I am rich and I have gotten riches. Look at me. I am rich and I've gotten more riches. Not only did this church boast in her supposed well-being, she boasted that she had acquired her wealth by her own efforts. Anything that we have accomplished here today, and if we think that we've accomplished it, we've fooled ourselves. It is only by the gift of God, his gift of grace, that we have what we have, that we are who we are. Spiritual complacency was accompanied by spiritual pride. The church, in reality, was a blind beggar, destitute, and clad in rags. Laodicea was materially wealthy and spiritually poor. Despite their banks, they were beggars. Despite their famous eye salve, they were blind. And despite their prosperous cloth, clothing factories, textile industries, they were spiritually naked. John Stott's words on this is that he says this. Here's welcome news for naked, blind beggars. They are poor, but Christ has gold. 
They are naked, but Christ has clothes. They are blind, but Christ has eye salve. Let them no longer trust in their banks, their eye powders, and their clothing factories. Let them come to him. He can enrich their poverty, clothe their nakedness, heal their blindness. He can open their eyes to perceive a spiritual world which, to, of which they have never dreamed. He can cover their sin and shame and make them fit to partake in the inheritance of the saints in light. He can enrich them with life and life abundant. So where does this leave us? Jesus is shaking his church. He's knocking on the door saying, let me come in. It seems by virtue that the church has excommunicated Jesus. And he is standing at the door saying, let me in. And it says, anyone who hears. And responds. So it goes to an individual, but it also goes to a church. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him, and I'll eat with him, and he with me. This is a sweet picture of that, that final wedding feast with the bride and the groom on that day together. But it requires us to have ears that can hear and eyes that can see. But before that, he says, those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This idea, this word reprove in the Greek has this idea that I'm going to uncover. I need to uncover some things. I'm going to expose your, your spiritual nakedness. I'm going to expose this, and I'm going to discipline you. But he says, to those whom I love, I expose and I discipline. We as a church, though five years, sometimes it feels like our cement has not yet set, that we still have some movement and some wiggle room. We have got to constantly remember that Jesus loves us, that we cannot be set. This is who we are. This is what we do. This, these are the programs that we do, and this is how we do things. We have got to be constantly listening to his voice and following the work of the Holy Spirit. Nothing changes scripture-wise and what he is saying to the churches. Who is doing the changing? It's us. A church planted in culture. Influenced by culture. So we have got to be listening and be willing to go through discipline. A loving discipline from a bridegroom who loves us. He says that we are to be zealous and repent. In verse 19, be zealous and repentant. We talk about this repent all the time. This repentance. It's not a word that many evangelicals or many churches like to talk about. In fact, we kind of like to rub you on the back and say, you're doing all right. Just do a little minor tweaking. You're doing good. I don't feel so bad. What do you expect? But Jesus says, be zealous 
talking about a radical feeling and emotion. Be zealous and repent. Dave, what's the word? Greek word? Metanoia. It's going in one direction. And in a zealous way, you turn and go the other. Be zealous and repent. The doctor, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, gives a great definition of what repentance is. Repentance means that you realize that you are guilty. Vile sinner in the presence of God and that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hell-bound. You're not just good. You are hell-bound. Fuzzy. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you and that you long to get rid of it and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost. The world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice. And you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. We get our gold from the one who makes us rich, Jesus Christ. We are clothed with his righteousness. No more works of our righteousness and what makes me feel good. We are clothed with his righteousness. And our eyes no longer see inward about me. But our eyes are healed. And there's light that pours into it. And we see a whole new world that Jesus wants us to see. To that church, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. We can no longer be blind, blindly self-sufficient. So even on our fifth birthday, we need to constantly remember the gospel. Because forgetting the gospel leads to being lukewarm, a person or a church who has lost their dependence on God. Whenever we take pride in our own moral goodness, our programs, our wealth, our you-fill-in-the-blank, we have fallen into the perilous sin of the Laodiceans. We are lukewarm water. And we're forgetting that all of our righteous deeds, like Isaiah says, are nothing more than filthy rags. Even our best activities before a righteous and holy God are filthy rags. Unless we see that we are poor and needy, Jesus will have no part of us. We do not begin the Christian life poor and then grow rich, grow into the riches of our own righteousness. We begin our Christian life spiritually bankrupt, absolutely bankrupt. And as we grow, we come to understand that even more the depth of our sin and our need for a Savior. It is only when we see our poverty and our neediness and our dependency on Christ that we truly become rich. Christ is not calling us. Let me tell you this. 
He's not calling us to wallow in our spiritual poverty, but to delight in the riches of his grace. As we understand this, as we understand these seven churches and the message that Jesus is saying to these churches and realizing that this is us, we'll live into grace. We'll love each other more. We'll share the good news of the gospel. We'll become more doctrinally pure. We will grow in our knowledge and our love for Jesus Christ. And this is not anything I'm saying right now. It has not been approved by the elders of consistory at all. But if, if we grow in our love and our desire for Jesus Christ and all that he has at our 10-year anniversary, if not before, we will see a new church birth out of this church. So the question is, who's going to go? Who will go? Some of you are going, I've gone once, I've done my 